0: We are looking in the book of Nehemiah over the next uh, four weeks as we start this campaign and we begin to think the next three years where God is leading us. I thought it would be helpful for us to turn to the book of Nehemiah and kind of walk alongside uh, Nehemiah because what we see uh, is Nehemiah set his um, sights on completing the task that God gave him to do, that there are some takeaways for us. That we can uh, draw out of this story uh, to imply to our lives as we go about the task that God has called us to do. And so we're going to be reading together in Nehemiah uh, chapter 1. The book of Nehemiah, before we read it, I just want to let you know, is the last, uh, it's the last book uh, of history in the, new, in the Old Testament. And at this time in the history of God's people, you may remember that, that because of their um, God's people, continuous rebellion uh, and turning their backs on God. God allowed them to go into captivity. He allowed them to go into exile. And they had lived in exile for 70 years. And then in about the year 5, 537 BC, they were able to return, only about 2% of them, only about 50,000 began to return to uh, Israel and to Jerusalem and it happened in three waves. The first wave occurred in 537 BC under Zerubbabel, and they went back to build the temple because the temple was the very place where God's presence was and where God was known, and they wanted to return and build God's house again for him to live there in Jerusalem. About 80 years later, a second wave came, and they came under the leadership of Ezra, and Ezra came to bring spiritual reform, and to guide people back into the way of God. And now we get about, I think it's about 18 or 20 years later, we have this third wave of God's people going back to Jerusalem, and this time it's under the leadership of Nehemiah. And that's where we pick up the story today in Nehemiah chapter one. We read these words. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hekelia. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, While I was in the citadel of Susa, Hananiah, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your, that the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants and the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commandments, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. I think as, we, uh, as I read the book of Nehemiah here uh, and I, I look at it, uh, what, was, what struck me is that I think there are uh, three checkups that we need to make. There are three checkups that we need to make as we begin uh, this journey to getting the task done. So at the very front end, I'm saying, uh, this is what we need to take a look at. Because if we're going to get her done, we got to make sure these things are in place, and these things are what will propel us forward. And so we need to do a checkup today. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't really enjoy checkups. Just go on record and say that. I do not enjoy uh, checkups. You get poked. You get prodded. You get asked all kinds of questions, and they expose all kinds of uh, problems and issues that you have going on. I mean, who knew drinking Diet Mountain Dew is not good for your health? Who, who knew that? Uh, and, one day, and one day, I had to go to, uh, within two hours of each other, I had to go to the dentist and the urologist in the same day. It was a wretched and awful uh, day. Uh, as I came home, with, I thought I was in good health, and they said, no, you're not. Here's some things that you need to, to address. I don't like checkups. And this morning may be kind of like that, that we get a checkup and we go, I don't really like this. I don't like it at all, but it's necessary, isn't it? If you want to have health, if you want to move forward in a good way, if you want to grow, you need to sometimes have a checkup, take an honest assessment, and then make a course correction so that you can move in the way that you should be moving. And I think that's what happens here in Nehemiah chapter 1 as we get a little checkup looking in the book of Nehemiah. I see three checkups, as I said, that we need to take. In the first checkup, Is that with our eyes. We need to check our eyes. We see in Nehemiah here, uh, he closes with that final sentence. He says, I was a cupbearer to the king. Well, I think that's a pretty sweet job, being a cupbearer to the king. What we know of Nehemiah being a cupbearer to the king is that he lived in the palace, right? That's that. He had all the comforts of the palace. Uh, that he had all the luxuries of the palace. He lived in the capital city, which meant he was in the place where there was uh, the latest and greatest and the newest. No lack of entertainment, no lack of anything going on there. His job was not all that difficult. I have to carry a cup for the king. Now, albeit, he did have to drink from it and make sure it wasn't poisoned. You can poo-poo that job if you want, but it wasn't all that tough. And there's Nehemiah, who's the cupbearer for the king, and life is pretty good, and we would think that a man who is as important as Nehemiah would not be concerned with others. But where where are his eyes focused? On others. His brother comes back from Judah. Judah, some 800 miles away. A place that Nehemiah has never been. 800 miles to this random place, Judah. uh, There's people live in there, some, I, I don't really know these people at all, and they're living 800 miles away, and he asks about them, and then he asks about this city that he never really lived in, and, he, and he's like, what's going on there? Uh, you would think that a man as important as Nehemiah was, cupbearer to the king, why would he be concerned with this remnant that's going off to Jerusalem? But he is. His eyes are focused on others. His eyes are focused on others. That's where this journey in Nehemiah begins. As Nehemiah begins to have the work put before him that he needs to do, it starts with him looking outward towards others. And friends, if we're going to get the work done that God has called us to do, we need to have our eyes focused outward on others. One of the number one reasons that churches begin to decline That churches start on a trajectory towards death is because their eyes move from the initial excitement of looking out and being the church of Jesus Christ, bringing people in, to now that we are established and here we are, our eyes begin to look inward on us. And we expect the church to come and meet my needs We expect every song that is sung to be the kind of song that I like to sing. We expect uh, the pastors to meet every one of my needs. We expect everything in the church to be just uh, palatable to me. Uh, It almost becomes, it moves from, as you've heard that statement before, from being a life-saving station to being a country club. And all we care about is us and our wants and our needs and our desires. That's a recipe for death. That's a trajectory to decline. It's a movement away from the mission of God because the mission of God was one of sentness, right? Jesus was sent into the world. And Jesus looked at his disciples and he said, I now send you into the world. And you as my church, you are sent with our eyes to look out towards the world. Jesus says it is not the the healthy who need a doctor, but it is the sick who need the doctor. And I have come to seek and save not those who are here, but I've come to seek and save the lost. And as my disciples and as my church and those who follow me, that is your mission, that your eyes are to be focused outward on others. And so that's our first check today to really ask ourselves. Where are your eyes focused? Are they focused on your life? Are they focused on your needs, your wants, your desires? Making sure all the resources you have, your time, uh, your, your finances, uh, that everything that you have, you focus it on yourself and your own comforts first. And if there's leftover, then I will give it to maybe others. Or is it primarily focused on others? Because Nehemiah, what I see is that his eyes were focused on others right out of the chute. It wasn't about him being comfortable. He had a concern for other people. And when he looked out to others, what did he see? His brother gave this report about them. He said, those who survived the exile are back in the province, are in great trouble and disgrace. When Nehemiah turned his eyes outward, what did he see? He saw a community who was in great trouble and disgrace. Why? Because the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. In the ancient world, the wall was everything for your city. It meant protection. Without a wall, anyone, any group, could come in to your city at any time and take anything they want. And that's what was happening to God's people. They could go in and they could rebuild the temple but they couldn't make it nice because if they put anything of gold and of worth in the temple, people would come right through the walls of the city, the gates were burned down so anybody could come into this city and steal everything that you had. They were in disgrace. We have no, we have no protection. As a father, I have, I'm in disgrace because anybody can come in at any time and, and just ramp, rampage my house. They can grab my wife, they can grab my daughter, they can grab my kids, they can take everything we know, they can come in here and just steal it all from me. We say we're the people of God, but we're in shame because our walls are broken down and everybody's pointing their fingers and saying, see, your God doesn't love you. He's left you unprotected. He's left you open to anybody attacking. He's still mad at you. He sent you into exile, you've now returned, but God still doesn't love you because, look, you're a disgrace. We can do whatever we want here. You people are Nothing and he sees they're in trouble and disgrace. In fact, the word used was, they are survivors. Is that any way to live? The people are just survivors, they're just getting by. They're just eking it out, they're surviving. And that's what Nehemiah sees when his eyes start looking outward. He sees this group, and he sees their trouble and disgrace. And friends, when we start looking outward, we begin to see people, and we begin to see their brokenness, and we begin to see their hurt, we begin to see their pain. We start looking outward, and we know that the kingdom of God is, was all good, but we see how sin has entered into the world, and has destroyed what God called good. And so we see brokenness, and we see despair, we see poverty, we see hungry, hunger, we see people who are abused, we see uh, people who are oppressed. We see people who are uh, receiving injustice. We see this world when we start looking outward. And that's what God calls us to do. And I think that's exactly why Jesus went to the cross. Because when he looked at us, what did he see? Broken world. He saw a broken world. He saw our sin. He saw our sin. And Jesus declared, I'm going to do something about that. But it started with him seeing the world and that's where we need to start if we're going to complete our mission how are your eyes today check your eyes are they looking outward the second check that i see that we need to make here uh, as i look at this story of nehemiah is that we also need to make a gut check a gut check that's something that my my coaches hollered at me often when i was playing sports i'd be wrestling and i'd be in a tough match And they'd be like, okay, Bobby, because my coaches always call me Bobby because Carol didn't sound very tough. All right, Bobby, you got to get in there. It's gut check time. Do you want this or not? And you're like, no. (laughs) (laughs) Gut check time, I'm failing here, coach. I'm failing. But what was he doing? He's going, are you going to go deep? Is it deep with you? And, and where is that coming from when we talk about it in your gut, that it's got to come from deep within you. And what I see here in Nehemiah is that when his eyes looked out and he saw the brokenness going in the world, it went deep within him. It was gut check time. Because the very first thing it says, he learns that the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. And he says, when I heard these things, boom, when I heard them, what was the impact on his life? I sat down and I wept. Do you see the response? It hit him. He heard about the trouble, disgrace. He heard that they're barely surviving, and it hit him, and he collapsed to his knees. He collapsed to the ground. He he couldn't even stand up when he heard this news, And, and he wept, and it says, for some days I mourned, and I fasted. He, he couldn't even eat. Notice he's like, I'm going to fast, and then I'm going, it wasn't a holy thing. He was mourning so much that he couldn't even eat. He, his gut uh, hurt him, was in such turmoil that he couldn't even eat. He had, no, he had no hunger. For some days, he was in that situation. If we look ahead into chapter 2, we see that when he shows up in front of the king with his cup to the king, the king looks at him, and the king says to him in verse 2-2, two, two, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. Nehemiah is gripped with this news. With, he sees the brokenness and the hurt and the pain and the loss. He says, this is not right. This is not the way it should be. And it grips him and he, and he, and he collapses. Because he's feeling it. And the word for this is compassion. It's compassion. In the New Testament, the word is Splanknizomai. Splanknizomai. And splank, where is the root of the word, means gut. And the Hebrew people always are a visual people, and so they place hurt and pain not in your head. They don't place hurt and pain. The the king was not right. It's not found in your heart. But the hurt and pain is found in the gut. In the gut. You feel it in your bowels, you feel it in your stomach, that's where you feel it, splanchnizomai. You're twisted, your gut is wrenched because oh my goodness, this news that I heard, oh, it just hurts so bad. And splanchnizomai is the one emotion most associated with Jesus in the New Testament. When you read through the New Testament, It always associates Jesus with splanchnizomai, with a gut-wrenching feeling. When Jesus saw the blind man, he had compassion, gut-wrench. When Jesus saw that the people were lost and and they they had no truth and they were just wandering around like sheep without a shepherd, he had splanchnizomai, compassion, his gut ached and was wretched for them. When Jesus looked on the crowds and he saw how, how they were just giving in to the Hellenism of the day and the waywardness of the day and the values of the day, which was all dark and, and not in the light, he had compassion. He had the splanchnizomai and his gut was wrenched. As, as Jesus walked through the towns and villages and he saw the blind man, he was wrenched. As he saw the hungry, he was wrenched. He was filled with compassion. As he saw the broken people, he was filled with compassion that's our God. That's our God. 15th century um, mystic uh, with a great name, uh, uh, Meister Eckhart says this. He says, you may call God love, you may call God goodness, but the best name for God is compassion. Because our God feels. Remember the scripture that says our God is tender hearted. And that's our God, because he created it all good and there's nothing more that breaks God's heart when he looks at his good creation and he sees that it's ravaged by sin. And it crushes him and he feels it in his stomach. And so we need to do a gut check and ask ourselves, is that what we feel? Do we feel that when we look out at this lost and broken world, when we see the sin in our world? Are we gripped with that same compassion? Does it hurt? Does it ache? You know, I mentioned being to, that I was at the, the dentist, and everybody knows that awful thing at the dentist where they go, well, we got to prep you, and they pull your cheek open, and they go, oh, there's a shot here, and you're going a shot here, and you're going a shot here, and then pretty soon your office is just like, all right. is just all numb. Yeah. And my favorite is when the dentist comes in and then wants to have a conversation with you. Well, that's right, God, please. And then you drool, you know, drool's coming down. But it lingers with you all after you go out for a while, because people are always like, you'll eat lunch, and the people are like, are you right here, they're looking here, right here, because you got food on your face. You don't even feel it, right? You drink your hot coffee, it has no effect whatsoever. You don't even feel the pain because you're all numb. You feel nothing. And I think sometimes we get into our world and we feel just like that. We're numb. We look and we get numb. Uh, Psychologists call this psychic numbness. We look at the world, and because we see so much pain and we see so much hurt and we see so much brokenness, that we get numb to it. And it increases if there's more than one person. If we see two, it increases our numbness. If we see a whole crowd, we are very numb. For example, if we look at the border and we see uh, crowds of people who are you know in, living in, in fences at the border. I'm not going political here, okay? Don't get that, me wrong here. This is, this, is, this is biblical here. If we see people at the border, and they're in fences, and they're in cages, and they're lined up there, we're like, oh well. We need a political policy to take care of that. But if they draw one little picture out of a little girl being ripped away from her parents, what do you do? You feel, right? It's one. But as soon as it becomes a crowd, we get numb. And I think that's the effect that our world has on us because we're blasted with images all the time of crowds of people who are hungry, crowds of people who are sick, crowds of people who are, ex- uh, who, who are being you know, uh, kicked out of their country. We see this and we grow numb to it. And I say, people of God, we can't grow numb. We need to have splanchnizomai. We need to feel it because that's our God. And the great goodness is that God didn't look at a crowd that, but he sees each one of us individually. He sees each one of us individually. And he says, I knew you before you were born. I knit you together in your mother's womb, and you are special to me. I breathe life into you. I see you. And I think that's what drove Jesus, that he didn't see the crowds. He saw individuals. Who touched me? He stops to see a woman. He's in a crowd. There's the blind man. Jesus always had his focus on individuals, and that caused him to ache in his gut. And so when we see those crowds and we see those images, we need to have the heart of our God. And we have to ask God to break our heart as his heart breaks. Our God is tenderhearted towards others, and that's who we need to be. We need to feel that compassion. And if you're here today and you can can look out at this world and you can look at the brokenness and, and you can you can look at uh, the, the, what's going on in the world of abortion, and you can look at, at the chaos that's going on with gender confusion, and that doesn't cause a, 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 you to know, ache in your stomach, then you've got to spend some time with your God. Yep. And you've got to build his heart in you because those are the things that break God's heart. Yep. And those are the things that light a fire underneath us. So spend some time getting to know your God. Read your word. Spend some time in prayer with him. Get to know God's heart so that you can have his heart. Because the heart of God is one of compassion. And the one that we're following is one of compassion, and we need to have that compassion. Check your gut. Check your gut today. Back in about the early 1800s, uh, there was a, a young man, uh, Leoid, uh, Leoid uh, Strauss, who left. Germany. Uh, At a young age, he came to America and moved to California and opened a textile business and changed his name to Levi, Levi Strauss. And he opened up his shop there, and there was one day a miner came into his shop, and the miner uh, said to him, he goes, "This this is ridiculous. We just look at this. I just bought these pants like six weeks ago, and already there's all kinds of holes. Uh, there's there's holes in him, and Strauss said, "Well, what's the problem?" He goes, "Well, we spend all our days working on our knees. We're working on our knees, so they're always they're just wear out on our knees." And Strauss looked at that and he said, "Well, I think there's something I can do about that." And he called in a tailor, and you know the rest of the story. He invented Levi, Levi jeans, and from this day forward, all the miners are wearing Levi jeans, and probably many of us have them on today uh, as well. But the problem that that miner had. I believe, should be the same problem that we have, that we should be wearing out our our jeans on our knees because we're on our knees spending time to God in prayer. Well, Some of you be like, well, I pray standing up, I pray in my bed, I pray. Don't be that person. (laughs) You wear out your knees praying to God. That's the next check we have to make. How are your knees doing? Are they wore out from from, from praying and spending time before God? Because what I see happen here in in Nehemiah, that he saw what was going on, it caused this this, this wretchedness in his gut, and his first response was to pray. In fact, all of Nehemiah 1 is a prayer, isn't it? That was his first response. He didn't get out there, and he didn't find somebody to blame. He didn't find out what uh, he didn't turn all a lot of different ways that he could have instead he turned right to God to pray. And it says for some days I prayed. And actually when we piece the story together, we know that it was probably about 40 days that Nehemiah prayed. Nehemiah prayed when he heard the problem, he heard they were in distress. He went right to his knees to pray and he prayed and he prayed and he prayed, and he prayed on behalf of those Survivors and those who were in distress. Why? Because he knew help could only come from one place, and that was from God. He knew that only God could reverse their situation. He knew only the power of God could work to change that situation. It didn't matter what he mustered up. It didn't matter how many gifts he brought to the table, how many resources he contributed. Unless God was in it, nothing was going to happen. And so he began to pray, and he prayed, and he prayed, and he prayed for over 40 days of prayer. And we know that because of that prayer, when they got there to actually do the work to rebuild the walls, the walls got rebuilt in an amazing 52 days. Like that. It was done. And I would suggest to you it was done because they were praying and God was in it from the very beginning. And that's where we need to turn. We need to turn to God in prayer. If we're gonna get her done, We need to be a praying people. This whole church needs to have everybody who's coming in here every week with wore out knees because we have spent so much time praying because we've seen the hurt, we've seen the brokenness, we've been gripped with it, and we know there's only one thing we can do, not put together another dazzling program here at Orchard Hill Church, but pray to our God to work. Because that's how God works. He could take care of it by himself, he could. But God chooses to work through our prayers and he calls us as people to pray continuously because God unleashes his power through our prayer and so I want to say of all the things that that we're asking of this campaign the most important is the 10 it's not the million dollars the most important is not the 1000 people that we're asking that we're going to invite and share the gospel with It's not the 100 new leaders that we need to raise up to go out into this world and do ministry. It's the 10 minutes of prayer. That's the most important ask we're making. 10 minutes of prayer, less than 1% of your time. Could you give 10 minutes of prayer a day for this community, for the things that break your heart, for the ministry of Orchard Hill Church? Because I believe That if we have 400 people wearing out their knees, praying 10 minutes a day for Orchard Hill Church, we will not lack the resources, we will not lack the leaders, we will not lack success in our ministry. It will happen. And so, will you pray? Today, right now, what do your knees look like? Have you been praying for Orchard Hill? Have you been praying for the leaders? Have you been praying for our community? What's been your investment? Because in order for us to get her done, we need to pray. Those are the checkups that I think we need to engage in today as we start this campaign. We need to look at our eyes. We need to consider what's going on in our gut. And we need to check out our knees. And so I want to leave some space here at the end of our service to do that. I intentionally move the offering to follow the message so that we would have a time to respond. And so our ushers will come forward and receive our offerings. And I hope you brought a generous gift to God, right? Because God gives us everything and our hearts are to return him the first and best of all that we have. So I hope you brought God a gift. But beyond that, as that plate goes by today, I hope that you will choose to hold it for maybe just a second and consider what you need to put in there. Is it that you need to develop eyes for this community? Is it do you need to confess and say, God, my eyes have been focused on me and I'm gonna change that? Do you need to ask God to fill you with his tenderness and with his love so you feel like he feels for the world? Or do you need to make a commitment to a, a more devoted prayer life? What is that commitment you need to make is together we consider how we get it done. That's what God's looking for. And so I hope you'll consider that during our offering time today.